Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We're your two Woodstock weirdos of wonderful facts. I'm Crazy Chester. No, that's not right. Uh, where are all the other dumb names that he uses on there? I'm uh, the Miss Moses of minutia, the, the bearded brethren of banality. There you go. The fannies of facts. And and I will fix your rack if you'll take old Jake, my dog. Anyway, uh, for those of you not steeped in the bizarre minutia of uh, of the band, we are here to talk about the band and their debut music from Big Pink. Uh, with the passing of iconic guitarist and songwriter Robbie Robertson, we thought this would be a great time to go ahead and take a look back at the debut album that shook the world. Um, maybe one of the most influential LPs of all time, if you consider its influence yeah. on Clapton and Harrison, and also the fact that along with like the birds, it launched folk rock as a as a thing. It's like the temp template for folk rock, and then unto that, Americana as a genre. You know. So um, here's a question for you. No, who do you <laughs> request tonight? Do you think that? Obviously, Dylan influenced the band. Mm -hmm. Do you think the band influenced Dylan more? Uh, with like John Wesley Harding. Yeah, that's National a great Skyline. question. That's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not enough of a Dylan scholar to right. know what he was putting into his stew around the same time. But I do know, at least according to Robbie Robertson, who, God rest his soul, everything he says must be taken with a, a carton of <sighs> Malcolm's salt. Uh, because he's <laughs> so early in the show to already be. I'm not. I'm gonna. Re Ill. I'm gonna keep back some of my Robbie Bile out of respect for the dead. But he is inarguably one of rock's greatest hagiographers. Um, That's that is true. He him and Jimmy Page. He, yes, he loves talking about himself and how much of a genius he is, and that is anathema to me. So. But if you were as much of a genius as Robbie Robertson, 
wouldn't you? Not if I spent my entire life having Levon draw. I'd, you know, I I feel like Fair. there's <laughs> with the other people in the band. I feel like that would keep you in check if you weren't Robbie Robertson. <laughs> That's the level of self regard and ego you need to have to not be humbled by the rest of your band. Anyway, what was I talking about? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, okay, in either, because I, I just brushed up on Wheels on Fire and the Hoskins biography, which the Barney... Across the Great Divide. Yeah, the Barney Hoskins biography, which we're going to cite both of them in this, but I was just brushing up on it, and I can't remember if it's Robbie or Levon talking about, but, like, when they were hanging out with Bob Dylan, they were, like, trying to get him away from the speed-addled, like, beat poetry, you know, rock, electrified blues stuff, and they were like... No, listen to Percy Sledge, like listen to <clears throat> the impressions. Like, so yeah, I do think there was some cross pollination happening there. But, um, you know, I think it might have been inevitable because didn't he cut a bunch of stuff in Nashville? So he was probably getting true for Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, at that, yeah. So around the same time, he was pretty steeped in country music culture, at least. Fair. So, um, yeah. Anyway, God, we're gonna, there's so many. I, I am even hesitant to wade into I was hesitant to even get into this because it, it's brushing up against Dylan and like Dylan fans Ooh. are f***ing nuts I say with love and it's just I a black hole yeah, yeah you better say it with love or else we'll hear <laughs> yeah so we I will hear yeah and, by which I mean like there are there are people who are as steeped in that as like biblical scholars and I'm not so that's all conjecture on my point, uh, on my end. I'm Jordan, by the way. We didn't actually introduce <laughs> ourselves. I'm Alex Heigl. Jordan Runtog. I, I, we <laughs> keep we forgetting to do this. I am at Alex underscore Heigl on the sinking ship of Twitter. You are... I am just my name, Jordan Runtog, all one word, R-U-N-T-A-G-H. Yeah, we've had some really lovely comments on uh, on Apple Podcasts, whatever that app is called, saying we've been, we haven't been able to find you on social media. I'm so sorry about that. I know that we don't have a Twitter page for the show, which I've gotten a lot of flack for, and I'm sorry about well, that. Well, it's Maybe too late we now. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> but we are there and, and are, are always down to to be chatty and always down for uh, for show request ideas and all that kind of stuff. We love talking to you. Thank you so much for reaching out. But uh, Indeed. Yeah, th this album, th the band in general, I kind of came to relatively late. I mean, obviously, I knew The Weight and some of their other big hits. Uh, notably, This Wheel's on Fire, thanks to its inclusion as the theme to my beloved Britcom, Absolutely Fabulous, yes. which is a great show. Such a it's weird a pick. Song. How did that come to happen? I have no clue. Because it's, it, it's so... It's the cover by uh, Julie Driscoll, oh, I think, okay. too. It's, it's funny because... weird British psych rock it, band. It's funny because when, uh, like, in his later era, Rick Danko's talked about, like, yeah, it's great to get a check for This Wheel's on Fire every year from <laughs> Abfab or from, like, the BBC or whoever it is. <laughs> Wait, I love the thought of Rick Danko watching Abfab. Makes me so yeah. happy. Oh, wow. But yeah, I the band, I just, I didn't connect with really until about five years ago when I was working on a, uh, a 50th anniversary piece for this album for Rolling Stone, which I'm going to be borrowing liberally from. So uh, I, I say that. <laughs> don't bother so to don't call get... him out for self-plagiarism. Yes. He's aware of yes. it. 
Yes. Um, I don't know. Probably because, I mean, you've said this about me a number of times, is that I'm so steeped in the whole, like, Brian Wilson, Phil Spector, broke pop yes. world. So the whole down-home basement approach is really antithetical to stuff I love. Mm-hmm. Pet Sounds, Revolver, Odyssey, and Oracle. So it took me a little bit to warm to this. But in a way the band, that was kind of the point. They were a reaction against that kind of stuff. Robbie Robertson would later say, we were rebelling against the rebellion. This is a great quote. If everybody was going east, then we were going west, and we never once discussed it. There was this kind of ingrained thing from all of us all along. We were kind of the rebels with an absolute cause. It was an instinct to separate ourselves from the pack. Again, world-class hagiographer, but <laughs> hell of a quote machine. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's true. I mean, if you hold Big Pink up against everything else that came out around the same period in the summer of 68, it's really stunning how separate it is. Mm-hmm. You've got the overdriven amps of Cream and The Who and Jimi Hendrix. The band focused on very clean acoustic instruments with very quiet arrangements that revealed musical intricacies and all the complexities of the lyrics. And then you've got bands like, you know, the Beatles and the Stones doing uh, their Satanic Majesty's Request and Sgt. Pepper and the Kinks. And they're all doing this very English-tinged, psychedelic whimsy, the first Pink Floyd album. The band was so resolutely American, which is hilarious because three-fifths were Canadian, uh, just so steeped in country, blues, gospel, and Western classical music. And, you know, this is the era when Brian Wilson and Pete Townsend and the Beatles are doing the whole studio as an instrument thing. And the band were doing their demos in a basement in upstate New York. I mean, drawing on their years on the road to create musical telepathy of the highest order. And and that's not even getting into the songs. And I think my favorite quote about the music on Big Pink comes from its producer, John Simon, who described the songs in a 1993 interview as, quote, more like buried treasure from American lore than new songs by contemporary artists. And I just think that's amazing. I think it's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, I also came to them relatively late. I Like you, I grew up reading Rolling Stone, and, and I would always just see their name and, the, and then, like, The Last Waltz. And I was just like, yeah. no. I have dead Kennedys to listen to. Like I'm, I'm not listening to a band. Honestly, the name did half of it. I was like, "What yeah. the f- is this?" And um, it was like that and the the. Yeah. And I was like, I don't need your gimmick. I don't. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. This is obnoxious. Um. <laughs> and then I, but then I would go and listen to a band called uh, the Crucifix. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then I. This is so funny because like the, you know. 18 months or whatever I spent working at a blockbuster in Fairfax, Virginia when I was at college were so formative to me because I saw so many great movies and that's where I saw The Last Waltz. I finally pulled it off the shelf and brought it home and was blown away. It is one of the greatest. I think it's better than Stop Making Sense. I... Wow. Yeah, I mean, Stop Making Sense is maybe better as like a piece of art but Last Waltz is a better band portrait and a better film. Mm. Like you get so much of their personality and you get so much of like, it's just like a world that you're immediately like, I want to live there. I want to crawl into that and live there. And they rotoscoped a Coke booger out of Neil Young's nose. And you just don't get that with Stop Making Sense. Anyway, so I finally watched that. I'm so glad we got that in there. Uh, every contractually obligated to do it every episode. Um, yeah, and so I went backwards from there. So I didn't even get to Big Pink until like 
much later with that. And, you know, having started with the live stuff and then some of the 70s stuff like Cahoots and Islands and Stage Fright, it sounds like primitive to me. And <laughs> we were talking about this mm. before we started recording, but like the Brown album to me, the self-titled one, the second album is um, one of my favorite records of all time. And and it just has, yeah. it, it, I think really marries the kind of basement clubhouse, literal clubhouse, pool house ambiance that they were shooting for with Big Pink with just a much clearer vision of their musicality. Um, you can just hear everything better. There's kind of this like miasma, a swirliness to, to Big Pink, but it's so, God, it's that and basement tapes are like the shots heard around the world as far as like launching like lo-fi recordings and like murky Americana as genres, you know, that they are just like, I don't know, dude, are they more influent? I think they're more influential than some of the Beatles records because like, I don't think you can, the Beatles records are like part of the monoculture, but I don't know how many bands you can directly point to and be like, or genres that you can directly point to and be like, they are doing Abbey Road. They are doing the white album they are doing i mean you can you can say oh big star power pop like you can say that but like you get modern folk rock and americana and so many branches of what is considered modern country you get that from basement tapes and big pink i agree with you to a point i don't know if i'd go that far i would say that it's probably as influential as some of the beatles records because it was a reaction to what the beatles were doing sure. in terms of using all the technology that the studio offered to make these new sounds that couldn't be played live. I think maybe that's the point. Well, yeah, sure. But I mean, then you got to factor in the fact that Harrison and Clapton's next influential records were directly as a result of their love of the band. So that might edge them over to me. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. This episode is going to be like five hours long and you have to edit it on a plane ride. (laughs) From the album's roots in Bob Dylan's motorcycle crash to the bitter rivalry at the heart of the strongest creative voices in the band to the extreme fandom that they picked up from two of the biggest British rock stars at the time, here's everything you didn't know about music from Big Pink. The story of music from Big Pink really begins the moment that Bob Dylan lost control of his Triumph Tiger 100 motorcycle while riding through the outskirts of Woodstock, New York on July 29th, 1966. All upcoming concert dates were canceled as he recovered from his injuries at his nearby home. At least that's the official version. That's what they want you to think. They don't (laughs) want you to know. Uh, There are some who believe that this crash was just a cover story put around to do one of the following, either allow Dylan to detox from pills or heroin, or he just simply needed a break after years of exhaustive toying around the world, and a crash was a good cover story to take some time off. Whatever the case, Dylan's professional pause put his backing band into a state of limbo. Yeah, um, I mean, this whole timeline is well-trodden, and originally we didn't have this in here, but it's something to bear in mind. The short story of the band's bio is that they were put together in Canada by an Arkansas singer and hellraiser by the name of Ronnie Hawkins, who miraculously died last year. Um, Just last year, I mean. Like, outlived many of the band and most of his peers. But he didn't get to experience Barbenheimer. (laughs) I wonder what he would have said. Um, yeah. Do you think he would have seen Loppenheimer or Barbie first? Oh, great question. Do you think the man who did Who Do You Love would 
I yeah, I you know <laughs> Ronnie Hawkins is so fascinating. Anyway, so he was playing um he was sort of a rockabilly singer, right? And and uh he put them together from their assorted other bands uh, in uh Toronto, somewhere in Canada. And their home base was kind of Toronto. And it's really funny because in this Wheels on Fire, Levon talks about like, oh yeah, by like the the you know, the sixties, the kind of like rockabilly stuff that we were playing was almost out of fashion in the States, but in Canada where they're five years behind, we were hot. <laughs> and so, um, but they ground it out. They were not only in the U S yeah. Chitlin circuit, like the, the, the kind of South pre highway roadhouse, uh, bar scene, but, they were uh, also in the Canadian equivalent of that, which is, um, you know, the same environs, but populated by more uh, wild people and also cold. The Tim Horton circuit. <laughs> and uh, Dylan came across them via blues singer John Hammond Jr., who recorded with drummer, vocalist, icon Levon Helm, keyboardist, wizard Garth Hudson and Robbie Robertson on his Vanguard album, So Many Roads. And then Bob, I didn't know that. Bob Dylan invited Helm and Robertson to join his backing band. And then after on the, the 66 tour, right? Uh, I think it was 66 tour. Oh, we're going to get some notes for this. Um, I'm pretty sure they came on. On the UK tour. Yeah, I think yeah. so. It was the Judas tour. Yes, the, yes, the, pop, the, the, the tour when he went electric and people, the British didn't appreciate that. But only after two shows, they told him, we'll only keep doing this if you bring on the other guys in the band, pianist, singer, Richard Manuel, and bassist, vocalist, Rick Danko. I love how both Levon and Robbie would say that each was the one who told Dylan, you either take all of us or none of us. It was definitely Levon. Mm -hmm. Robbie would have said, uh, okay, <laughs> you can, you can take me. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, how much in this episode are we going to get into Robbie's thorny legacy and the Robbie versus Levon? Uh... Oh, we'll get into it. Okay. All right. Good. I mean, look, I'm not going to on him too much, but like I am a firm believer in the notion that loving something means seeing it warts and all, uh, especially when it comes to art and artists. And you absolutely cannot talk about the band without talking about their dissolution and without talking about Levon versus Robbie. So, we, and we, we, which we, basically boils down to what it means to write a song. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why it's so endlessly fascinating to me in a way that like a lot of band rivalries aren't because it comes, a lot of band rivalries come down to like, Oh, you slept with my wife or I just don't like your face. But this one truly gets at the heart of what it means to be in a collective creative unit. And it, that is just endlessly fascinating to me. I've heard a bit about music rivalries. <laughs> well, by the time of Dylan's motorcycle accident, Levon had left the band. He preferred to go work on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico rather than endure the booze that Dylan and the Hawks were getting from people who didn't appreciate Dylan's move into the electric realm. He saw a dude get hit in the face by a crane hook on that oil on that oil rig <laughs> because the winds were choppy that day. Uh, and he he talks about he was like, and after they you know airlifted that guy off i looked over and saw the body bags hanging on the wall <laughs> it's like holy shit. that is so metal that he went and did that that's like that's like a bruce springsteen song irl <laughs> you know it's even funnier how he got there because i was just God, reading this, this wheels on fire well so he he basically went and spent all of his money from that tour in florida ran out of money and 
did you know about like this thing? I didn't know they, they in the middle of the century they had what was called driveway cars, where basically a car needed to get to another city. Oh yeah, so you yeah. could go to the dealership and be like, or or whoever, and be like, oh, uh, I'll drive it there, and they'd be like, okay, here's the car. Uh, and so he was flat broke in Florida and got a driveway car and drove it to New Orleans, and then from there went into the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> where he almost watched a man die. And then proceeded to create several some of the most immortal music of all time. <laughs> For years, when you were unhappy at your job, you used to always tell me that you were going to go work on an oil rig. And it took me a <laughs> long time until I realized what the reference was. Uh, by the I, I, way, this was in August of 1965 that Levon yes. went off. So this was in, they started with him in, in the summer of 65 tour, right after he went electric at the Newport Folk Festival in 65. So just want to get the timeline right on that. And he was away from the band for two years. He worked on an oil rig for two years almost. That's insane. God love him. But uh, honestly, Levon going to work on the oil rig started to kind of look like a good career move after Dylan's accident, as far as the rest of the band were concerned. Rick Danko said in Levon's memoir, This Wheel's on Fire, we didn't know what to do. We were road musicians without a road to go on. We still wanted to record, so we started looking for a place to rehearse some music. And this brings us to one of the most common enemies of musicians, aside from David Geffen and Mike Love. <laughs> and who else? Who else is an enemy of musicians? Katzenberg doesn't count. Copyright law. Copyright um, law, yeah. The Marvin Gaye estate. Drink tickets. <laughs> Sweetwater? Tell us which enemy of musicians we're talking about, Heigl. We're talking about New York real estate, baby. <laughs> Take us there. Well, this must have been outrageously affordable by New York standards. I mean, I think in the uh, the the Velvet stock that came out uh, two years ago, Lou Reed and John Kell's New York City apartment was like $60 a month. <laughs> anyway, um, it was too expensive for the band to hang out in New York City. I think they were staying in the Chelsea, actually, uh, oh. time. But they were on retainer from Albert Grossman and, and Dylan. So they decided to move to Woodstock in the rural Catskills in upstate New York. And Dylan and his manager, Albert Grossman, lived there in addition to a, a couple of other members of the New York City music scene. Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary was their connection to the place. He had a family cottage there. I think it was his aunts uh, that he used to go and visit growing up. And he was the first person who brought Rick Danko and Richard Manuel upstate in February of 1967 to work on this film document. There's all of these, there's these bizarre counterculture films. Um, Tarantula was one of them, right? Tarantula, eat this document, eat the document. Um, there's another one. You are what you eat. Right. I, I, I think. And and yeah, it's all this thing of like, I blame Andy Warhol that all these musicians like saw all these experimental Warhol films in the mid 60s. And were like, I can do that. Um, that's how you get the monkeys film. <laughs> among no, head rules. Have you ever seen head? I haven't. But uh, Robbie Robertson had also uh, gone up there to help Dylan and a filmmaker named Howard Alk assemble Eat the Document, which was about the um, 66 tour. The band, who had been on the road for most of the decade, fell in love with the slower pace and the unspoiled forests, the beautiful scenic mountain view. Garth Hudson, who I don't think ever left after <laughs> the last waltz and a couple of doors. I think he's just been ensconced in his Woodstock mansion for like two to three decades now well i think his beard attached to the moss and so he's <laughs> yeah. just part of the mountain <laughs> he told barney hoskins in the band bio across the great divide it couldn't have been a better place there was a lot of magic in woodstock 
Everywhere you went, the legends were reflected in the names of the places and the streets. Warworsing, Ohio, Bearsville Flats. God bless Garth Hudson, a beautiful grandfather twilight of a man. A gentle soul. Love him. Uh, Rick Danko was enlisted to find a suitable clubhouse for the band when they decided to make the move up to Woodstock. And he found the perfect place at 2188 Stoll Road in Sogarties. It was a boxy split-level home that looked like it had been trucked in from the suburbs. The bright salmon-colored paint job supposedly earned it the derisive nickname from locals, Big Pink, which is funny to me because it's not that big, and it's also not something that can really be seen from the road, so I think that's all apocryphal. It's funny how how out of place it looks. It does, Because you, yeah. you, hear, you hear the songs and you... Some of the stuff cabin. Of, yeah, you hear some of the stuff about Woodstock and you're like, oh, this looks like a big slate, a slate fronted mansion or something. And it's like got gross siding. It's got like a drive in garage. It's just an ugly f-ing house. <laughs> yes. And it can be yours for like $700 a night on Verbo, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't believe we didn't do that. I was Heigl and I, for, for, for new listeners who don't know, we were in a we were in a band for a number of years together. I was in Heigl's band. And uh, I was trying to get us to take a band trip up there and rent it all together, but we probably couldn't afford it. I was going to say, was not in the budget for $40 no. a night in Brooklyn's finest dive bars. No, and uh, you could, you can't go into the basement there, which, as we'll talk about in a moment, is the whole kind of most of point. the point. I know. Yeah, they won't <laughs> let you go in the basement. It's like not being able to go oh. into the basement of the Buffalo Bill House, which we've also <laughs> talked about. We should be getting kickbacks from these sons of bitches. Pro- yes, yeah, <laughs> we should. We absolutely should, or at least a free stay, which I would happily take from the guy who runs the Airbnb of the Buffalo Bill House from Sounds of the Lambs or whoever has Big Pink on Verbo. Yeah. But as you probably have guessed, given our not-so-flattering description, Big Pink was not especially luxurious, but despite its aesthetic shortcomings, the property boasted hundreds of acres of woods and fields, views of Overlook Mountain, a pond, four bedrooms, a simple kitchen, dining room, and a living room furnished with knickknacks. And what else, Heigl? Well, uh, apparently a, a neon beer sign of an unspecified brand, which Levon said Richard Manuel, quote, liberated from a local tavern. All this was theirs for just $125 a month. So Garth, Richard, and Rick Danko moved into Big Pink in the spring of 1967, while Robbie Robertson found his own home. It was four bedrooms there, right? I don't know. I find that I find that strange that already then he was finding his own place. Well, he uh, had, he moved in with his girlfriend at the time. Well, is so. my understanding. <laughs> well, the other ones I don't think were were shacked up at that time. I think they met girlfriends or developed relationships in. In Big Pink. Leave him with Libby Titus and... Uh, Richard was married to like a model, I think. Hell yeah, he was. <laughs> Danko was the cutest, though. Danko was the heartthrob in the band. Oh, yeah. Especially in this era yeah, when yeah. he had the little mustache and... Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. He That's... looks just like... um, uh, What the hell's his name? Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Pedro Pascal. Yeah, looks yeah. just like him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so their homey routine at Big Pink, it's like something that, again, not to keep harping on the monkeys, but it seems like something out of a monkeys episode. Rick Denko described it thus in This Wheels on Fire. Richard did all the cooking. Garth washed all the clothes. He didn't trust anyone else to do them because he wanted them clean. And I took the garbage to the dump, personally, and kept the fireplace going with split logs. Isn't that cute? 
<laughs> yeah, I and we're gonna do little sidebars on the different members of the band because we just because why not? I have to. Um, Rick Danko is incredible. Um, I was thinking about how to articulate this earlier. The band as a musical unit is so fascinating to me because they're like a collage or like a Syrah painting. Like the closer you Ooh. get and start zooming in on what each one of them is doing, it's harder to identify what makes it so cool. And I say this as someone who has Googled Rick Danko bass and Levon Helm drums like way too much. I mean, with Robbie, there's different things you can point to. You can be like, oh, well... You know, he's got the pinch harmonics, he's got the, you know, the um, the tremolo picking, like he's got these different guitar licks and everything, but like the way that the rhythm section works and the way that Richard plays rhythm piano and, and all of Garth's key, uh, additional textures is all so unique and so fascinating, but it's hard to point to their different things that they're doing specifically. Um, so I've endeavored to do exactly that. Rick Danko is one of the first people to actually play fretless in a rock band context. Um, and he played uh, an Ampeg fretless bass. Ampeg was one of the first commercial makers of fretless basses. Um, and I think they sent him some stuff because you can see him for, you can see pictures of him playing a baby bass, which is a weird hybrid upright electric model that they produced and uh, an electric fretless. And this is years before fretless broke through with Jaco Pastorius, who's probably the most famous bass player of the 20th century. He's a guy who brought, legitimized the electric bass as a, as a jazz instrument, essentially. But you can hear Rick playing fretless, and because he started on upright, he has this fantastic sense of pitch, but what he does is he does a lot of uh, glissandos or slides into a note, by which I mean he, if he's going to land on a D... Uh, he will slide into it from a C or a C sharp, from a half or a whole step below. But the thing that's great about what he does is that he never, not never, but he rarely lands on that target note on the beat. He starts his slide on the beat that he's supposed to land on so that the actual target note is delayed ever so slightly. And it contributes to this really like loose but tight, sense of their groove and especially in these live records like the academy of music shows they sound like a freight train man it is so <laughs> out of control but still so zoned in because they're like gacked up uh wake of the flood is another great one that has like just the some of the best live rock band interplay and he is such a great part of it especially while singing too mm. um and he uh, he's great at varying the length of his notes um, to get different feels and and uh, work with with Levon for the rhythmic feel of the song, and also doing all of this while singing, and also doing all of this while switching back and forth between pick and finger style. I mean, he's just I don't think he gets really mentioned enough um, as some of the flashier guys of the period, um, but he's absolutely one of the the greatest bassists of the era, and again. The fact that he was also a singer, <laughs> a great at the singer, same, a great singer. He's he. It's really funny because he has um, he often sings close to the same register that Richard does, and the identifying uh, how you can tell one of them apart is that Rick Danko had asthma when he was a kid, so he always has this wheeze in his vocals. So even when they're singing in the same register, you can kind of hear this like gasping for air, which is why he sound it's so endearing and why his his mm. he has this fantastically sincere quality of his voice you know when you think crazy chester followed me like it's because he literally can't get enough air in his lungs and it's just ah, oh, love him so a much little blink 182 right there though 
spiders. Um, <laughs> I think we've had, I think before we started rolling tape, uh, long, passionate discussions about King Harvest. And I think that's a great example of his bass playing where he slides into it on all those. Whoop, whoop, like it's yeah. Just, it's just so swampy. And he's fast too, man. Like there's yeah. live, there's live stuff where he's playing some fills that are just like, what the f is this? Like, just again, dude, like 16 years on the road. And I think the thing when people hear that they were on the road for 16 years, you think of like modern bands where you're like, okay, 40 nights a set. No, false. From like the 50s to the mid 60s, if you were banned, that was three hours a night was your set and you would play two sets. So that's like chops and material and just like like 10,000 hours he probably had 10,000 hours before he could drink anyway and also we have to mention Hamlet Hamlet the dog <laughs> <laughs> if you're a nerd like we are you've definitely seen a big old cute dog in basement tapes and band photos and that is Hamlet who is gifted to uh, Rick Danko because Bob Dylan couldn't handle him in this wheels on fire uh, Danko explains Albert Grossman and Bob Dylan had paid about a grand a piece or $10,000 in today money for these pedigreed German dogs that had come from the most illustrious bloodlines in the world. But something went wrong. Hamlet was more like a standard poodle mix than <laughs> Hamlet was more like a standard poodle mix with a German shepherd and a giant short haired terrier. Bob is having just, a hard I've time. I've never in history heard that in the context of something went wrong. Yeah, Hamlet was a poodle mix. <laughs> Bob was having a hard time with the dog one day when I was over at his house. The dog was bigger than Bob, and Bob already had a St. Bernard pulling him around. I stayed out of that one, but Hamlet and Bob were having some trouble. Bob said, please, Rick, take this dog back to the house with you. I insist. I didn't want anything bad to happen, and Bob had kicked Hamlet out of the house, so he was living outside. So I took him back to Big Pink. He slept on the carpet by the stove through most of the basement tapes music and most of the Big Pink rehearsals as well. That dog heard a lot of music. This brings us to Big Pink's most famous feature, its basement. Robbie Robertson wrote in his 2016 memoir, Testimony, that was my focus, turning that subterranean space into what we'd needed all along. The goal was to use whatever gear we could from our live show to create a setup that would let us discover our own musical path. So they began to gather equipment for a home studio facility, but the response from a technologically savvy friend royally bummed them out. <laughs> According to Robbie, this unnamed friend surveyed the scene and said, well, this is a disaster. This is the worst situation. You have a cement floor. You have cinder block walls. You have a big metal furnace in here. There are all these things that you can't have if you're trying to record something. Even if you're just recording it for your own information, you can't do this. It won't work. You'll listen to it and you'll be depressed. <laughs> your music will sound so bad that you'll never want to record again. But by this point, they'd already signed the lease on Big Pink, so they were sort of stuck with it. So they threw up some Norelco microphones, two Altec mixers, and a quarter-inch Ampec 400 tape recorder, and more or less crossed their fingers. Bob Dylan, who was still sort of ostensibly their boss, would sometimes stop by, and together they workshopped new music. And within a year, they would demo... The number I've seen quoted is over a hundred songs, which would endlessly be bootlegged as the basement tapes. And these demos would prove to be the seeds of music from Big Pink. Yeah, um, they did this by playing super quietly. The whole thing about them and their studio sound at this time was like, like the guitar solo in King Harvest is recorded with the amp set on 
one. <laughs> uh, which is insane because he does these pinch harmonics on it, which are traditionally something that you re- only like you get speaking with a lot of volume and distortion. But um, uh, he got those from Roy Buchanan. I, I I think I remember him saying in an interview, he's a fantastic blues guitarist. Um, yet another tragic figure as well. But um, uh, yeah, they they played everything really really quietly and a lot of that was because they didn't have a PA down there and they were doing all these harmonies and vocal parts. So it was all volume and dynamics, you know, that's what carries into the studio. Yes. And contrary to its name and its sort of romantic reputation, music from big pink wasn't actually recorded at big pink, which I was kind of depressed to learn that. I admit, <laughs> it's, it's a rock myth that I very desperately wanted to believe. Um, neither were a lot of the basement tapes either. They weren't recorded in the big pink basement. The timeline for these sort of ad hoc sessions are a little hazy, but it's generally agreed that they began at Dylan's house in nearby Birdcliff before shifting to the basement of Big Pink in the summer of 67. And then when Levon Helm returned to the band after his two-year oil rig hiatus in October of 67, Big Pink began to feel a little cramped. Uh, And to remedy this, Levon and Rick Danko moved into a nearby home on Wittenberg Road, which became the new center of recording operations, while Garth Hudson and Richard Manuel shacked up at a place on Ohio Mountain Road, and Robbie stayed at his own place with his girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, Dominique. Uh, I think this means that they moved out of Big Pink at the fall of 67, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah, the official Basement Tapes release, I think, was pretty controversial because it's a lot of post- studio overdubs and stuff and not the basement tapes it's not the raw yeah Yeah. no but these basement tapes these were just the demos the tracks themselves for music from big pink were recorded in extremely professional studios in new york and los angeles which again i find very disappointing uh this was largely thanks to manager albert grossman who was bob dylan's manager who then became the band's manager and he got them a deal with Capitol records one of the worst bastards in rock music is he I've I guess I've been he's... reading a lot about Alan Klein this afternoon, so well grading on a curve. But yeah, I've yeah. heard I've heard not good things about him. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people basically peg Robbie's sort of dissolution into egomania on hanging out with Dylan and specifically Grossman. There was this, <laughs> I forget it was maybe their first manager. I forget the guy's name, but he's talking in um, Across the Great Divide where he was like, "Yeah, Robbie got a lot more standoffish." Once he started really broing out with Albert and, and Dylan. And at one point he turned to me unprompted and was like, you never liked me as much as you liked Levon, didn't you? <laughs> it's just like, okay. <laughs> Robbie, it seemed like he had a very good gift for convincing very cool people that he was also cool. From Ronnie Hawkins to Bob Dylan to Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Very, very, very good at that. Just saying. Just saying. But anyway, this bastard, Albert Grossman, got the band to deal with Capitol <laughs> And I say that with love. Got the band to deal with Capitol Records. And he teamed them up with producer John Simon, who is best known to me for recording cheap tricks with Big Brother and The Holding Company featuring Janis Joplin doing that amazing version of Peace in My Heart. Around the same time that he was recording music from Big Pink. Yeah, Simon's, Simon's really cool. Uh, he grew up playing fiddle in piano from the age of four in Connecticut was writing his own songs before he was 10 he wrote a couple musicals in high school and then three more while at Princeton <laughs> he joined Columbia uh, as a trainee producer after he graduated 
assisted on a bunch of stuff and then got his first pop success with the Red Rubber Ball by Circle in 1966. Written by a young Paul Simon and the band Circle, spelled C-Y-R-K-L-E, was named by John Lennon. Uh, Awful. And... uh, (laughs) John Simon was also involved with the You Are What You Eat project, uh, which is Peter Yarrow and uh, the aforementioned Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary and Barry Feinstein. And that was how he was uh, introduced to the band. Um, he was a super talented piano player. Uh, I think he tried to join the band at one point. And they were like, keyboards are the thing we have enough of. Um, <laughs> and But he also played horn. Uh, he plays baritone sax in that breakdown and chest fever. But he also had never played the tuba before. And when they did Rag Mama Rag, because Danko's playing uh, fiddle and not bass, he picked up a tuba and did the bass line for Rag Mama Rag, which is wild to me. Can you imagine looking at a tuba and being like, I can play that? It's probably a marching tuba or a, a sousaphone, but yeah, just looking at it and being like, yeah, yeah, I got that. And then playing like a competent bass line to, on it. Insane. John Simon actually met Robbie Robertson when he was working on an album by iconic jazz saxophonist Charles Lloyd. Uh, Charles Lloyd started in Cannonball Adderley's band. Keith Jarrett got his start playing with Charles Lloyd. Charles Lloyd was one of the jazzers who was really beloved by the hippies. I think he played at Monterey and some stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, they were. he was working on a session with them and they were like, yeah, this guy Robbie Robertson's going to come by and, and hang out. That was how he met him and the rest is history. And then another great quote from Across the Great Divide. When they were making the second album, uh, Robbie Robertson was like, I'm going to watch you do this so that we don't have to hire you again. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea. He, he didn't, because Garth is the one who engineered the basement tapes, recorded all the basement tapes. Garth was the gearhead in the band. And uh, yeah, and so Robbie wanted to start doing it himself. So he just learned everything he could from John Simon and then summarily never called him again, which as we will see is a theme. <laughs> I wrote a musical in high school. Oh, yeah? I did, yeah. It was called Happy Ever After. It was about uh, a good, honest man who gets sent to hell in a wacky afterlife mix-up, and he falls in love with a demoness whose only sin was she never loved. You know, that would probably get greenlit. That sounds like a Pixar yeah. movie at this point. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I, could, I can't write music, so I borrowed uh, melodies from other songs and wrote my own lyrics to it. Hey, if you want to scab right now, there's a strike. We'll do it. I don't <laughs> give a fuck. I have nothing left. I have no morals left. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. 
witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. So, sessions for music from Big Pink began at the very famous a Studio A in New York City, which is this barn-shaped 10,000-square-foot facility on the seventh floor of a building on 7th Avenue. I, For some reason, it being, I can't imagine just like making all that soulful music in what's essentially a skyscraper. That's part of the reason it doesn't, I don't like the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, no, fair. The session started in January 1968, and John Simon, the producer, asked the band how they wanted the music to sound. And Robbie Robertson told them, just like it did in the basement, and this sent the engineers into something of a tizzy because it quickly became apparent that traditional studio configurations with each member cordoned off with sound baffles to prevent leakage, which is how you make records, wasn't going to work after months of these guys playing eye to eye in a cinder block basement. And Robbie recalled telling the engineers, we can't do this. We got to get into a circle like the basement. We have to play to one another. We're speaking a language. This doesn't work. And the technicians were really skeptical, but the bands were thrilled by the fruits of these early sessions in New York, which yielded tears of rage, we can talk, chest fever, and the weight. I remember there was a great description of the way the uh, the vocals in We Can Talk were done. It was like a really great pickup basketball team passed the ball to one another. They all yeah. just trade lines seamlessly. Like, I mean, it, there's nothing... Phone, because you know that could sound really phony when like each member of man sings a line or something, and just really grating and cute. But there's something so cool about how they do that in that track. I love that song. I think that's the one that has, uh, yeah, one voice for all echoing along the hall. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's so good. Yeah, Robbie. I Robbie's lyrics are not like tremendous, but he'll knock them out of the park sometimes. They get the job done. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk more about that. Uh, executives at Capitol, who signed the band in early February 1968, were so pleased that they actually sent the band to Los Angeles to take full advantage of the state-of-the-art eight-track studio. That's hilarious <laughs> that that was state-of-the-art, uh, located at the famous Capitol Tower headquarters on Vine Street. I imagine 
was that the same studio that like Sinatra and that King Cole and those yeah. guys have recorded? Wow, that's nuts to think that that music was made where like Stardust was recorded. <laughs> that's crazy. And yeah, the album was mostly completed in LA at Capitol Studios. Though the group would make a short excursion to Gold Star Studios, where I'm legally obligated to mention Phil Spector pioneered his wall of sound with the Ronettes and the Crystals and all those great groups. And Brian Wilson recorded a lot of his best Beach Boys tracks. You a Beach Boys fan? Uh, a little bit. Okay. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> I really, I would love the tally of like... Your seven, Beach Boys this, mentions... The seven things I'm interested in and how many times I mention them in each of the 120-something episodes we've done with this Sure, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and while we're talking about the band's deal with Capital, we have to talk about the name of the band, The Band. Heigl, do you want to talk about The Band's name, I, I would band? just I would just paraphrase the entirety of Richard Manuel's speech in Last Waltz. He's like, well, first we want to call ourselves the Crackers. <laughs> Uh, they, they, they performed as the Hawks since 1960 because of Ronnie Hawkins name, <laughs> but eight years later, it was a little dated primarily because they were no longer backing Ronnie Hawkins, but also by 1968 Hawk had come into vogue as uh, a term for the pro-war contingent of the U S you know, Hawks and doves, doves want peace, blah, blah, blah. Uh, bad way to market a rock band in the sixties as it turns out. Um, so they needed a new name. And while up in Woodstock, uh, that was not really an issue because they were the only band that was there, literally. Uh, and they all kind of talk about, um, in Last Waltz and in the different books, they just talk about uh, everybody being like, oh, that's Dylan's band. They're with the band. They're the band. Uh, even to the point where they would be like, I'm short on uh, I'm short on cash for this grocery store transaction. And they'd be like, yes, yeah, they're, 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 they're in the band. Send the bill to Dylan or whatever. Um, but when they were getting signed, they needed a name <laughs> because you need one to put out a record or maybe you don't, as it turns out. And in the last Walt, uh, Richard Manuel talks about, uh, he's like, uh, the marshmallow overcoats, the chocolate subway. <laughs> I love your Richard Manuel impression. He has, he is the best in that movie. Uh, it's so sad because he was, well, I, think at, sad. I think at that point he was drinking like a bottle of Grand Marnier a day. Uh, and oh, also, more than that. And also like gacked up. I think it's in Across the Great Divide where they talk about like during the, when they were making the second album, the like absolute squalor he was living in where they like went to go pick him up into the apartment or whatever. And it was like, it was littered with Grand Marnier bottles and the only food he was eating were steaks that he cooked with uh, an iron, clothes iron, and his radiator. <laughs> hell of a hell of a voice, though. Um, I, I have I have a when the, they were living out in California at Shangri La, the, the famous Malibu studio that Rick Rubin now owns. I think no. um, Richard Manuel was living in like a bungalow down the hill that had formerly been the stables for the horse that played Mister Ed. <laughs> And I guess they converted it into some kind of like small shack and he lived there. And supposedly when they were cleaning out the place after he moved out in like 76, 77, they found, I have a quote for this from, from I can cite this somewhere, uh, 2,000 empty bottles of Grand Marnier. That's a lot of Grand Marnier. Good Lord. Yep. 
anyway, Robbie Robertson counted with uh, the jokey suggestion, the Royal Canadians, except for Levon. That's good. I like that. Uh, everybody loves a Guy Lombardo joke. Do they? I do. Okay. Almost as much as I love uh, a uh, the Beach Lawrence Boys. Walk joke. <laughs> Levon himself offered the Crackers, which was a name that they joked about when they were backing Bob for his comeback concert at Carnegie Hall in January of 68. But uh, Levon tried to justify it to Capitol Records <laughs> by saying, Crackers were poor Southern white folks, and as far as I was concerned, that was the music we were doing. I voted to call the band the Crackers and never regretted it. <laughs> That's in this Wheels on Fire. Um, and they, Capitol Records was getting ready to go with it. They thought it was a like Ritz Crackers reference or like saltines. They were like, "That's cute." Um, <laughs> and, uh, Robbie wrote in his memoir, Testimony. They didn't realize we meant uneducated country, bigoted Southern white trash. And so the name on the Capitol Artist Declaration contract form reads, Group Performing as the Crackers. Uh, <laughs> according to Levon, someone at Capitol eventually wised up to the real meaning, writing in his book, uh, When the album was eventually released on July 1st, 1968, we were shocked to find it credited not to the Crackers, but to a group called it The Band. Well, it was us. That's what Woodstock people called us locally. When the people on the other side of the desk at Capitol didn't want to release an album called Music from Big Pink by the Crackers, they just went and changed our name. But Robbie, as is his wont, has reverse engineered the explanation in various accounts and various tellings over the years. He told Rolling Stone the band story about Woodstock. Everyone just called them the band. But earlier than this, in a September 68 interview with an outlet called The Eye, he insisted that the band didn't have a name. He said, one thing I'd like to clear up, we have no name for the group. We're not interested in doing record promotion or going on Johnny Carson to plug the LP. The name of the group is just our Christian names. The only reason the LP is by the band is so they can file it in the record stores. And also, that's the way we're known to our friends and neighbors. Uh, in Across the Great Divide, uh, Barney Hoskins writes, Indeed, when The Weight was released as a single in September, many reviewers listed the five names as the name of the band. One British writer complained, this is even worse than Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch. I don't know what that means. They were a pop group, and instead of having a name, they just add everybody's name in the band. And they recorded in Studio 2 at Abbey Road, where the Beatles recorded. I just read a reference to that today. Hmm. Well, promo pictures uh, did, in fact, have the all five members named out. Um, yes, Jamie, Robert Robertson, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, Garth Hudson, Levon Helm in larger letters than it reads, better known as the band. So that's fun. What do you think was the real explanation? Did you think that they really wanted to be known as the Crackers and the record company changed it? Or do you think that they just went with the band on purpose? Um, I Yeah, I do think there, that was probably cap, someone at Capitol caught up to them. But I think it probably the paperwork came through to Albert Grossman and Robbie Robertson. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and now we got to talk about the standout track on the album, The Wave. The standout track in the band's entire canon, really. Uh, and as with many classic things we discuss on this show, nobody recognized it for what it was, and it was very nearly given the axe. Robbie Robertson wrote the song soon after Levon Helm rejoined the band in October of 1967, supposedly as a way to give him something that suited his distinctive vocal style. Robbie told Uncut, I, Every time I read Robbie's quotes, I want to do his, like, his voice is a very distinctive way of telling stories. We didn't know what we were doing. 
That's from the classic <laughs> albums thing. Here, please, please read this quote. Read the rest of this. No. <laughs> Don't put his words in my mouth. I thought, geez, I want to write a song that Levon can sing better than anybody because I know his abilities. He was my closest friend and I wanted to do something really special for him. Oh, <laughs> and it, cutting him into the f***ing publishing rights probably would have been nicer. <laughs> Here, you, you highlighted this. You read the rest of this. Well, according to lore, Robbie was in his music workshop when he noticed a label inside the sound hole of his Martin D28 guitar reading Nazareth, Pennsylvania the location of the guitar factory. He was intrigued by the juxtaposition of this biblical name and Heartland Americana, which is more or less the band's whole bit. Kind of the bit. Robbie has said that the song borrowed less from the Bible and more from the films of Spanish director Luis Buñuel. Um, intriguingly, one of my favorite bits in Across the Great Divide is uh, when Robbie and um, Martin Scorsese are both extremely divorced and extremely doing a lot of cocaine and living in a mansion together, watching uh, 1920s and 30s Spanish surrealism films until like 6 a.m. with blackout curtains drawn. And that's the reason why Robbie is so heavily focused and, the, you know, and why has he's gone on to work on all these Scorsese music. Not, I might add, composing that much like Randy Newman, but just supervising, which is basically playlist selecting. Um... Uh, anyway, but yeah, it's really funny to me because there's no way he would have name checked that without someone like Dylan guiding him to new heights of pretentiousness. <laughs> anyway, he said the people in the song were trying to be good and it's impossible to be good. Uh, Bunel used surreal imagery in his films to offer critiques of organized religion in movies like Veridiana and Nazarene. Neither of us have seen these movies. No, absolutely not, no. So Robbie began writing a song about a man who becomes bogged down with favors for other people, um, most of whom were actual figures from the band's past. Anna Lee was uh, Helm's friend, Anna Lee Amsden. Carmen was another person he knew from his uh, hometown of Turkey Scratch, Arkansas. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. That's so good. That's yeah, almost that's as good as Nutbush, Arkansas, or Nutbush, Tennessee. My favorite is uh, Bill Withers, Slab Fork, West Virginia. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, Helm would later say that Crazy Chester was a guy we all knew from Fayetteville who came into town on Saturdays wearing a full set of cap guns on his hips, kind of walked around town to help keep the peace, if you follow me. Uh, I, I, I did until he said, if you follow me, and now I think there's some meaning that I don't know for keeping the peace. Yeah, I man, all of Levon's quotes are so good. You've seen Ain't In It For My Health when he talks about, he's talking about, he's like super high and talking about how tripped out platypuses are. Yeah. He's like, they got a venomous spur on the, those some bitches will stick you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all of these characters got mixed into Robertson's story, which he wrote in a single sitting. Uh, he wrote in his memoir testimony, the following day I played the tune for the guys to see if it might be a contender. They reacted very strongly to the song's possibilities but I mostly thought of it as a fallback tune in case one of the other songs didn't work out. They only attempted it in the studio at the end of a session for something else. And um, they attempted a bunch of different arrangements of the past and it didn't really stick out until Garth actually switched over from organ to piano and plays those, that amazing octave, octave line, um, sort of barrel house piano style that he would 
Another great part from the classic albums documentary is when uh, Levon pulls up his solo, Garth solo piano track from, uh, I think it's Rag Mama Rag, and just pulls the faders all the way up in the end. And he goes, Brother Garth, ain't it easy when you know how. (laughs) (laughs) The man was a Southern aphorism machine. Um, Robbie later said, we recorded it. And it wasn't until we listened back to it that we realized, holy sh**, this song's really got something. I think the best explanation that I've heard for this song is actually in this Wheels on Fire where Levon quotes Robbie as saying, it's a song about the impossibility of sainthood, mm. which is such a better, shorter way of saying all that shit I just said. Anyway, the song's famous stacked call and response vocals and the chorus were a deliberate nod to the staple singers. I didn't and this know that. reference, yeah, and this would be made literal in the last waltz when they perform the song with the staple singers. One of the best musical performances ever committed to film. Uh, so much to love there. My pers- my my favorite part is at the end when Mavis does this incredible... I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. She does this incredible like run at the end. They land on this harmony. And just before it fades to black, you just hear her go, beautiful. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was. Um, Do you think she was nervous? Because didn't she have a big crush on Bob Dylan? That I don't, not I think by that time, you know, she told me when I interviewed her that that their whole Dylan thing was like mid sixties when, uh, the story that she gave me was, um, when, uh, they were performing at some NBC folk thing. Cause the staple singers were staple singers are amazing. They, they, and they're really interesting in the history of how gospel music became really popular in mid century America because they grew up on or pop staples. The patriarch grew up on Dockery farm, which is the plantation in Mississippi, work farm camp, whatever Southern euphemistic term they called for paid slavery at the time uh, following Reconstruction. But this is like the wellspring of where American blues music basically comes from because Charlie Patton was there. I think um, also Howlin' Wolf, uh, Robert Johnson, like all of these guys orbited uh, uh, Dockery and Parchman. Was it Parchman? No, Parchman was the penitentiary. Uh, Dockery was the, was the work farm. Um, so Pop Staples was from there and he's, so he's a direct link to the first generation of American bluesmen. But when, uh, the great migration occurred, he moved his family up to Chicago. Chicago is such a huge, obviously blues hotbed, you know, John Lee Hooker lived there for a while. The Chicago chess records, Muddy Waters, the Chicago blues is a sound, uh, little Walter Howlin' Wolf, but it's also a huge gospel hot, you know, Sam Cooke, uh, started with the Soulsters in Chicago and the staple singers started singing in Chicago. And their early stuff is basically just like him on electric guitar playing this beautiful tremolo-laden uh, guitar. The tremolo is such a great part of their sound. And his kids, uh, Mavis Cleora Purvis, I think is... The, I'm just... I'm really fishing for him, but singing these beautiful family harmonies. And they cut records down at Stacks. Uh, I'll Take You There... And sort of crossed over onto the pop charts with stuff like Heavy Makes You Happy and I'll Take You There. And they actually got a lot of backlash from this, from the gospel community. Like the gospel community kind of closed ranks around them because you weren't really supposed to play electric music in church. Um, Same with Sam Cooke, too. Didn't he get like, yeah. Yeah, they, they would try and go back and play church services and people would kind of turn their noses up at them. Anyway, they are so exemplary of the gospel vocal kind of tradition when we when you think of harmony singing there's broadly divided into two things there's the really precise 
close voiced harmony stuff that you get in Beach Boys recordings, um, more white gospel, like uh, true, like what they call Southern gospel, like quartet singing. That's the kind of stuff that filters down from Appalachia into modern rockabilly. And that's where kind of the Beatles picked up on it. And then uh, you get the sort of almost choral vocal blend that filters into folk music with guys like Simon and Garfunkel. Gospel singing is a little more ragged, uh, a little more the the phrasing is kind of overlapping rather than everyone singing syllables precisely the same way. And um, a great example of that is not just the staple singers, but a lot of people have obviously a lot of what a stupid statement. A lot of people have seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Good one, Alex. Um, the Fairfield Four, who are the gospel quartet, the, who sing, uh, they're the grave diggers at the end of that movie, and they sing Lonesome Valley, is such an incredible example of the style of singing, because their vibratos are not even synced up. Some of them have incredibly wide vibratos, and their their phrasing's kind of slipping and sliding all over the place, they're, they're bending in and out of pitches, but it still hangs together so beautifully. And that's how the band did it, you know? They, um, frequently, they... Richard Manuel has an incredible voice. Um, he has a really low baritone, but he also has this beautiful falsetto that you famously hear on I Shall Be Released. So that frequently meant that he would be taking the top part, Levon would be singing the bottom, and Rick would be bounced around in the middle. But it was a, very, a lot of space between the three voices. Um, more just like like spread spread out chords on a piano rather than these tight kind of locked voices that you hear um, in other harmony bands around the time, harmony singing bands around the time. And, um, that was directly from bands like the Staple Singers, uh, and, and gospel music influence. I always think of just the sound that I always hear when you th I think about Southern black gospel, which is embarrassing because this is such a, a poppy, not to mention white example, but is, uh, Paul Simon loves me like a rock with the Dixie Hummingbirds, an incredible uh, black gospel vocal group. And just that opening, the mm, they're all just doing these hummed notes. Uh, but as you say, their vibratos are all out of whack, but it just, it sounds so good. The blend is well, so Dixie good. Well, Dixie Hummingbirds are interesting because they actually start in the 20s with what you call Jubilee Quartets, which is like the real clean, polished college guys who were touring like Fisk the Fisk College and Jubilee Singers. Um and then as sort of soul music picks up, the other more like raw edged kind of stuff comes in. This is all I'm I'm getting all this from a great book by Anthony Hellebutt called The Gospel Sound, which is pretty much required reading for anyone who's interested in gospel music uh throughout the twentieth century. This has been your gospel corner of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So all this, no, that was incredible. All, all this to say that the weight is awesome, but the weight is also a prime example of the troubling dynamic between Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm. I'll read this part and then you hop in whenever you, <laughs> I, you. <laughs> It's frequently pointed out that the Canadian-born Robbie Robertson discovered the American South through Levon and turned it into hit songs that he was frequently the only songwriter listed on. Thus, he exploited Levon's own heritage and made a buck off of it. And this rubs. Oh no! A lot read of that. that read that next line, Jordan. But uh, yeah, but uh, Robbie's part Cherokee, so maybe he has it coming. <laughs> but yeah, when Robbie first joined up with Ronnie Hawkins back in the early '60s, it was Levon who was there first and showed him the ropes. Levon was the first guy to join up with Ronnie, and then the group that we know as the band joined one by one. 
And then after Levon quit, after they went on tour with Bob Dylan, he just didn't like that life and went to work in the oil rig. Robbie took over, basically. He was took the lead on writing the songs and they landed the record deal based on those songs. And my point being that when Levon rejoined the band after they got signed to Capitol Records. He was no longer It was no longer, yes. It was now slight edge to Robbie as being the leader. I know it was an egalitarian enterprise, but Robbie was probably the one that was more in control. Robbie's narrative has always been that as the everyone got more and more drugged out, they stopped wanting to contribute. And it is sort of borne out in the records, you know, like you, I mean, well, you, you, sorry, I cut you off. Like the, the right, talk about the writing credits, right? On the, on the, on, on per, per record basis. Yeah. Big Pink, Robbie's credited on writing less than half the songs. And on the group's second album, the so-called Brown album, the self-titled album, he wrote two thirds of the songs. And on the group's third album, Stage Fright, he wrote all of them. And you could say this was because the other members of the band were too strung out to work or they were too strung out to notice that their names weren't showing up on credits. And Levon has a great line in his memoir. He says that he was, quote, pencil whipped and didn't realize <laughs> that he wasn't credited on the Brown album until he had the final record in his hands and looked at the label. But even Ronnie Hawkins, who, again, was sort of the band's mentor and wasn't afraid to bust Robbie's chops or anybody's chops in the band, said in the very Robertson-centric documentary, Once We're Brothers, from 2020, Levon was great at arranging, but Robbie was the one who wrote all the songs. Robbie himself talks about Levon nodding out during sessions for Stage Fright and Richard Manuel refusing to do a show after he lost his heroin stash. But in Levon's autobiography, he suggests that Robbie joined with the band's management to persuade the other members of the band to sign away their individual publishing rights, which is, you know, where the real money is in the music industry. But yeah, this really just brings us into the whole thorny matter of what what does it take to write a song? Like what like you later on you use the example of chest fever on this record, which I mean, the thing that you remember about it is that organ part. And I don't believe Garth is credited on that song. Well, so the you know, quick primer for anyone who isn't familiar with the sewage of the record industry. <laughs> Songs are credited for music and lyrics, not arrangements, which is why you get a lot of people nowadays have been airing their grievances over co-writing with a lot of famous songwriters. Father John Misty has this famous uh, quote where I think he was talking about, he didn't name anyone. He said he'd been offered the opportunity to co-write with a lot of prominent female pop stars. So I think triangulating the sort of people who he might have been talking about, my bet would be Adele or Lady Gaga. But um, he basically said, you you dash off you dash off a tune and send it over to them and uh, they make changes to it. And if your part, original composition is, your words are highlighted in blue and theirs are in red, you get a piece of paper back with an ocean of blue and two dots of red. And that entitles them to 50% of the lyrics. And that, or fifty percent of the publishing, and that um, the the more sh the shorter way of explaining that is a music industry aphorism called "change a word, get a third. Um, and you know, this is a big thing as rap and hip hop became ascendant because you would get people uh, once you get like a bunch of different rappers on a song that counts as writing. So you get someone phoning like Lil Wayne who famously would just record a feature on anything you asked him to do from his tour bus on cough syrup 
suddenly getting publishing rights to something that he was not even in the same state or country for when it was being created, which is obviously issues of race and all of these other issues aside, understandably rankles the people who do the bulk of creating these songs. And this is, when I say bulk, especially back in this day, that meant being and and making the the music, being in the room, writing the music, you know? And, and, you know, Robertson has talked about, uh, he said when they were doing the basement tape sessions, he learned, he said he learned how to write songs a different way from Bob Dylan, which was at the typewriter. And it's very Mm. instructive because he talks about Dylan would come over to the house Amble down the stairs, listen to what everyone was doing, go up to the, the the ground floor, write a bunch of lyrics out, and then come downstairs and kind of free associate them until they had a song. So that's a very literal, uh, you know, way of thinking music plus lyrics equals song. But that doesn't really hash when you are working out group arrangements, man. And it doesn't hash when you are relying so heavily on other people to execute your vision. I especially take issue with it with Robbie because if he was such a f***ing genius, where's the rest of his damn career? <laughs> Name me a single Robbie Robertson song. Do it now. I He probably couldn't. I mean, he can't now. But name me a single Robbie Robertson song. Like, you can't do it, man. It's not like John Fogarty where, like, you know, John Fogarty and... and Credence, like the whole big thing was how John was a dictatorial controller who even told the drummer what drum beat to play for songs, right? Like told everybody what to play. And that to me bears fruit because John Fogarty had a career after CCR. The f*** did Robbie do other than pick the playlist for Scorsese movies after, well, he did write The Way That You Use It, which is a song that whips um, from Color of Money. Yeah, with uh, Clapton. But also that song sucks. Like it's some (laughs) of the dumbest lyrics possible <laughs> i mean is it about what i think it's about his dick probably yeah okay um but it, no it you sounds know, like you a, did, it sounds like a defense of a size you know i'm i'm problem. being i'm being heigl the character of heigl right now but does this, what i'm saying make sense does this wash like yeah. i feel like it's not like the beatles where it's like oh yeah all of these guys have with the exception of Ringo, have these incredible <laughs> careers afterwards demonstrating the fullness of their original talent with the band, you have Robbie, who's spent his entire career since they broke up going, well, no, I actually wrote all these songs. And then people were like, cool, do you have any other ones? And he's like, no. <laughs> and especially because he wasn't a f***ing singer, man. They never yeah. let him sing on this stuff. And the a whole Caledonia thing. Station, right? That's the one. The, the only song. And on oh, last, Kingdom Come. Kingdom and Come, on sorry. Last Waltz, he's singing into a turned off mic. Which is another big thing that pissed Levon off because he's like, 70% of that movie is f***ing Robbie's face. Loving close-ups. Opera scarf bedecked, pancake makeup caked face, his stupid bronzed Stratocaster, and he wasn't singing. (laughs) You have three incredibly talented people who you had sing all of these songs, including one guy whose identity you hijacked wholesale. And you're like, oh yeah, but I, you know, but it's still all me. Like, what the f***? Does that make any sense? I broke a pen on my desk just getting so worked up about this because it makes me so angry. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, 
As somebody who spent much of his high school career being the good lab partner with a bunch of not good lab partners, <laughs> I, I I have tremendous sympathy for for Robbie for being stuck with people who are in the throes of addiction and really unable to keep the momentum going on this incredible thing that they'd built. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of it was his place to advocate for other people. Sure. I mean, it's it's honestly, at the end of the day, it's it's the big Lebowski law. You're not wrong, Robbie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're just You're an just, ass. Yes. It's especially galling to me, too, because it's like, I don't know, man, bring him in on a f***ing soundtrack. Like, he... Like when you look at, and I was just looking at this, when you look at their wiki pages, they did not, the other guys did not work a lot. Levon was in the Ringo All-Star Band and and you see like, they're like, oh yeah, Richard played on um, a song on the King of Comedy, which Robbie was music supervisor on, but he sure wasn't the music supervisor. Like, it's just like, if you guys were, you named the f***ing documentary Once Were Brothers and like every single one of them Levon almost lost his house, <laughs> you know. Like, it's just it 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 really rankles me. Um, and and I know, you know, you don't speak ill of the dead or whatever, but I I think more people, I don't know, man. I people should know about it. It's it 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 bothers me because it gets to the heart of what it means to be a creative person versus what it means to yeah. be like a man a manager, you know. And um, I don't respect managers. <laughs> No, I mean that's why I find this discussion so interesting. I mean, yeah. I know it, 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 it may seem tasteless or tacky or cruel to to go in on on a recently departed millionaire um, musical legend and millionaire, but it is it's a fascinating debate about what it means to be a creative person and, and just mean yeah. and, and how to move through the world, man. I mean, like you know, yeah. when Pink Floyd can Sid, they paid for his life. Yeah. Afterwards, you know, Robbie moved to Hollywood. Didn't talk to anyone. Cashing my big fat Marty checks. Also, never forget, never forget that the whole reason f***ing Neil Diamond is in the last waltz yeah. is because Robbie produced his record and they were gonna cut muddy damn waters yeah. for time until Levon threatened to walk from the entire thing. If you need a starker illustration of the dynamic between those two men, Levon advocating for one of the biggest influences on their music and a person who they, in theory, owed versus Robbie advocating for his sleazy, leisure-suited coke buddy and his damn song. <laughs> Dry your eyes. He's wearing aviators on stage. Ugh. All right, I'm done. <laughs> Move on. Well, dry your eyes. <laughs> Has anyone ever looked more like a quaalude in 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 personified than than Neil Diamond in f***ing Last Waltz? I mean, I would argue Van Morrison on Last Waltz. <laughs> Oh no, sweet little Van. Actually, I was going to talk, did I talk about this later when I talk about Richard Manuel? One of my favorite outtakes from Last Waltz is Richard Manuel and Van doing Tura Lura Lura. Oh yeah. Have you heard that? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, man, sweet, sweet Van Morrison. They're, I, as, as they, as, as, as someone once referred to him, 
the band's drunken mascot. Because <laughs> he would just bum around Woodstock with them, just wasted. And then he comes on, comes on Last Waltz and gets his little moment in the sun with his kicking his little feet up. I, that's one of the best. Oh my God. I love that scene so much. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Well, The Weight is a stellar instance of Robbie Robertson's musical brilliance. But now we're going to look at the other extreme, chest fever. Uh, great hell record. of a riff great record yeah great record not great song no it's a weird one yeah very very weird it's it's somewhere between inagata davida and drunk salvation army brass bands which are, are kind of two of my interests i have to say but yeah it's kind of an outlier on the album Came out of a jam session, and uh, everybody generally agreed that it was recorded in a semi-complete state. Levon later said in his memoir, Chess Fever had improvised lyrics that Robbie put together for the rehearsals and never got around to rewriting. The song came kind of late in the process and got recorded before it was finished. 
And Robbie pretty much said the same thing when talking to Barney Hoskins for his book, Across the Great Divide. I'm not sure I know the words to chest fever, he said. I'm not even so sure there are words to chest fever. He would later elaborate in a way that kind of makes it seem like he doesn't really like the song. If you like chest fever, for God knows what reason, it's just (laughs) this quirky thing, but it doesn't particularly make any kind of sense in the lyrics, in the music, in the arrangement, in anything. But apparently Bill Murray is a fan. Paul Schaefer played it as his walkout music during his final appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman in 2015. Yeah, and w- once again, what do you remember about that song? That insane organ intro. Talk, talk to us about the organ intro and, and just our beautiful honey boy, Garth Hudson. Oh, sweet Garth, the professor. Professor Hudson, I think Levon calls him. Professor Garth. Uh, yeah, Garth... Um, he his dad was a musician. Garth started playing at a real early age. He was the house organist at his uncle's funeral parlor, which is incredible. Uh, he he was in a, a Bach nerd when he studied at the University of Western Ontario. Um, in the classic albums for the Brown album, there's some great moments of him just sitting and improvising at a keyboard and like talking. He's like, well, how am I going to get out of this one? And like modulates to a different key and just like soloing and doing all this really ridiculous shit. Um, but they, they, they need an intro. So he just, he does the, banana. he quotes Takata and Fugue in, in D minor, the famous Phantom of the Opera Bach, uh, piece, and then just goes nuts and then just riffs on it. And that eventually became a separate keyboard show piece called the genetic method, um, that he would do, go up to like 20 minutes in concert the, uh, on rock of ages. I think it's like 15 minutes. They only show a snippet of it in, uh, in last waltz, but yeah, um, and and just such an incredible, um, probably the best pure musician in in oh, the band yeah. oh, by a mile. Yeah. Um, you know, I said I was done bashing Robbie. I'm not done bashing Robbie. They all talked about how they would be sitting around, and Robbie would be like, "Oh, you know, what's what 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 should we do there? What should I do? Uh, you know, what should I do here? What should I do there?" And Garth would be like, "Ah, oh, try this, try that." Doesn't come across in the credits, you know. Or voicing chords different ways. Um, so, you know, just a real... And he played sax, too. I love his... I uh, forgot he played sax. Yeah, what's the... What's the... Um, uh, it makes no difference. It makes no difference that he takes a little solo. It's really, really pretty stuff. Uh, and Last Waltz. Makes no difference. God, that song's so good. Sorry, what were we talking about? Uh, oh, yeah. You go. Go ahead. So he was a few years older than the other guys in the band, and he had a classical background. And he supposedly would only join the Hawks in the early days when they were backing Ronnie Hawkins in the early 60s if they agreed to pay him a $10 a week retainer as the music tutor for the group. And this was apparently in an effort to satisfy his parents, who were annoyed that he'd thrown away his music education to run off of the rock bands, which I love. He also, uh, he, another great, he was a, apparently a hell of a negotiator because when he joined the Hawks, he was like, I'll do it if you buy me an organ. <laughs> and he's in, he's notable if you're a nerd like we are, because, uh, he, he was one of the few keyboardists in the mid sixties to not use the Hammond organ. He used mm-hmm. the Lowry and, um, you know, one of the craziest things that that had at the point was a pitch wheel, uh, which lets you microtonally oh. bend notes. The Hammond didn't let you do that. So some of the weird synthy sounds on the band records are him with the Lowry organs uh, pitch wheel. 
And yeah, like you mentioned, he was the band's resident gearhead, and he tricked out this Lowry organ with a whole variety of custom effects, including a wah-wah pedal and an early two-speed rotating Leslie speaker cabinet, which, uh, how would you describe that? Just gives it kind of a washy, whooshy sound. Very psychedelic. The Leslie is, uh, is it's two speakers that are mounted sort of back to back and they, it spins on an axis, uh, in a giant cabinet sized piece of equipment. Um, yeah, it's, it gives that washy kind of washy whooshy. Yeah. And so much of the, of the organ sound is you can change the speed of it to change that, uh, that spinning quality, but that's not even, I mean, just the ridiculous he would also put on the songs. Yeah. I mean, he was the one who was really responsible for cobbling together a home studio in the basement at big pink out of basically electronic odds and ends. And, uh, he was the one who, after everybody went home after a session would stay behind in the studio and try to sweeten the tracks, which led to the band referring to him privately as HB or honey boy, because he was Mm. staying behind sweetening the tracks, which I love just stacking up chords, putting on brass, woodwinds, whatever was needed to make the music sing, as Levon said. And one of the most unique experiments that he undertook during sessions for Big Pink can be heard on This Wheel's on Fire, one of my favorite tracks of the album, a Rick Danko tune put to Bob Dylan's lyrics. Garth created that really weird staccato keyboard effect by hooking up his electric piano to an old telegraph key that he purchased from an army navy surplus store and he by manipulating the on off signal on this he was able to create this very percussive morse code like sound yeah i mean the other big thing for him is the um in cripple creek that uh in the post chorus thing is um that's a clavinet uh oh, years before stevie wonder wow exactly yeah and it's um it's supposed to sound like a jaw heart the the was what i always assumed it was yeah yeah and i think that was something that he kind of put together himself uh he had two wah pedals that he had on the console of the keyboard so he could manipulate it with his hand rather than his feet and so he would just play it with one hand and use the pedals with his other hand Whoa. Just a, a genius, you know? One hell of a beard. Yeah. And he apparently also built a guitar amp. Yeah, so I you know they they talk about uh, the the guitar tone on some of the on some of the um pink stuff. They the only thing that I've been able to ask or that, that I keep reading, they call it a, the black box that Garth built. So my bet is that it's some kind of a speaker cabinet that was supposed to be um a kind of Leslie ripoff and maybe a preamp in there of some kind, but just again, something he cobbled together and then they put uh, Robbie's guitar through it for tears of rage. No pictures of it. Yeah. No, trust me. I looked for it. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of tears of rage, I know you got a lot to say about tears of rage and especially our beloved Richard Manuel, um, Richard Manuel, man. I mean, that falsetto, I, I, is it Eric Clapton who said, he sounds like he has a tear in his voice. I, I think it was like Holy Madman, I believe, was the... Uh, yeah. And his, uh, wa- his wife, his, well, his, his second wife, the wife who was married to him when he died, said that his voice sounded like a hug. Yeah, and he, you know, everyone compared him to Ray Charles. I think, doesn't he do George on my mind on one of their records? Or I was that so. just like a live thing that he's done? Yeah. Um, 
but you know, a, a great keyboardist player too. Uh, one of the things in Wheels on Fire that uh, Levon talks about is is how the piano was a rhythm instrument in in those early bands because the only thing that could get above the sound of the din of everything else was a sax guitar or organ. So the piano was. I don't they they didn't have a sophisticated PA at that point so the piano was rarely mic'd so Richard in the Hawks was just doing uh piano but then he would come out on stage and do all of these ballads in that falsetto voice they would do these Ray Charles tunes and he could just bring down the house with it um he's also a drummer you know at, he became the band's drummer when they didn't have Levon he's drumming on a lot of those original demos and he's also drumming on Rag Mama Rag, because Levon's playing uh, mandolin, I believe. And his drum feel is wacky, but it's great. Uh, suits the, suits them well. Um, <clears throat> and he also has my favorite joke in Last Waltz, when they're all talking about uh, groupies and uh, the uh, relationships that they've had on the road. Richard, just, Richard goes, he cracks, well, I'm just trying to break even. Which is one of those, you'll get that on the way home jokes. Like it just, <laughs> when I had the first time I saw it, I was like, what does he mean? Oh. <laughs> also dated the woman who uh, was charged with the involuntary manslaughter of John Belushi. Yeah, he's he's a lot of darkness in Richard. Yeah. Shape I'm In was was an autobiographical, autobiographical yeah. song about him. Oh, yes, 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 yes. My God, when they, when they, in the last waltz, when they're like, they're playing the intro to that song and the spotlight hits him and he's just like, <laughs> it's so, it's so rough. That's so yeah. rough. And he, he looks like a skeleton. Wait, there's a description of him. It's sad too, because his voice was really out of shape by that point from just from drinking and, and Coke. And so his, his falsetto was really not in the best shape for it. Richard was thin but drank like a fish with a fish's distended belly and a fish's penchant for being eaten by sharks. When he vacated his Malibu beach house in 1976, they found 2,000 empty Grand Marnier bottles. He had to take Placidil, a potent downer, in order to sleep. Naked, he looked as if his liver were bulging out of his abdomen. He was so saturated with alcohol that even his skin seemed to sag off his bones. That is by Martin Levin from the Canadian magazine Toronto Life, a March 1996 article, The Lonesome Death of Richard Manuel. Right? Oh, that article's rough. Yeah. I remember bad. that one. I didn't. Yeah. It's real, real bad. Uh, where are we going? Oh, get us out of here. Where are we now? Oh, naked <laughs> people. Jesus naked Christ. People. Great. Naked yeah, people. Speaking of, speaking of nudity. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, yes. Well, the whole arrangement of Big Pink bucked trends at this time, and this was even the case sonically. The album opens with Tears of Rage, which is this gently soulful ballad. I mean, it's a beautiful song, but it's not exactly like the traditional explosive album opener. It's anything. It's just a. It's completely counterintuitive. It's a, a dirge. Yeah. More than one person has compared it to She's Leaving Home because it was oh, the wow. sort of uh, the rare rock song of the time that sympathized with the parent being distraught over their wayward child. Well, that's, you know what? I was going to talk about this later, but this is a good point for that. I mean, they, they use that whole mentality of rebelling against the rebellion as part of the design on the album cover. In the inner sleeve, you've got, um, I think, three members of the band. I think Rick, Richard and Garth, maybe? I, th I think it was those three posing with their parents up in Canada. And, yeah, you know, Levon's the... couldn't make it, so they, they 
they overdubbed them in. Yeah. It's so funny how they were dressing at that time too. I think it's in Across the Great Divide where it talks about um friggin' Robbie was driving his Jaguar from from Woodstock to New York and got pulled over for speeding and the cop was like, All right, Rabbi, I'll let yeah. you off of the warning this time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, with Capitol, when they were putting this album together, they wanted the band to, you know, get a slick cover portrait. And instead, Robbie had become fascinated by a book of 19th century photographs depicting grim-faced laborers from the Western frontier locked in rigid poses because back then, you know, took 30 seconds or something just to get like a, yeah. a, a single shot. So everybody stood stock still so that they wouldn't screw up the exposure. And they decided to take a group portrait that drew inspiration from that. And they also chose the least glamorous photographer they could find, a man named Elliot Landy, who worked at the time for the very ragged underground paper Rat, which I'm not super <laughs> familiar with, but the name is evocative enough. And I believe our former bandmate, uh, his aunt worked for him. Oh, interesting. Yeah, up in Woodstock. Gigi? Yeah, his aunt. Oh, Gigi, far yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, People were telling us about the best photographer, so I asked who was the worst photographer in New York. Robertson told Barney Hoskins. Someone said, there's this guy, the staff photographer for Rat Magazine. I don't know if he's the worst, but he works for this magazine, which is unquestionably the worst. Landy, the photographer, actually crossed paths with the band's organization when they were backing Bob Dylan at his concert at Carnegie Hall in January 1968, when Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, literally escorted him out of the theater for taking unauthorized photos during the concert. But despite this, he and Robbie Robertson became friendly. And in late April, 1968, the band asked him to take a group shot for the album cover for the album art, at least not the cover at the Bearsville home where Levon and Rick Danko had moved after leaving big pink. And they all donned period hats and vests and string ties and, you know, like you said, not very dissimilar to their everyday attire. And they trooped out to a grass hill to recreate an old-fashioned daguerreotype. Is that how you say that? Daguerreotype? Daguerreotype. <laughs> daguerreotype. Daguerreotype. The Aristocats. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Landy later explained... I told them that in those days, film was very slow and people had to stand very still. You were posed, you took a deep breath, and you didn't move. And the band did their best to maintain their stern expressions, but this was made difficult by naked people. Heiko, tell us about the naked people. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, friend Landy, of the pod, uh, friend of the pod, naked <laughs> friend people. of the pod, nudity. The band did their best to maintain their stern and dour countenances. But uh, there was a naked hippie couple dancing behind the photographer. Friends of Garth's. Uh, Unusually. Funnily enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, Levon wrote in This Wheel's on Fire, while the photographer was focusing his camera, the young wife of a friend of Garth's was dancing behind Landy, trying to make us smile. As he snapped the first shot, she tore off her dress and did a naked little grind. So there we were, trying to be cool in the face of this outrageous hippie dance. I think that's the shot we ended up using. It's like on the... Um, the second album, the the brown album, that photo of them on the cover, they all look f***ing miserable because it was just raining. Just in the rain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I think was also Landy. I think so. Yeah, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, the artwork on the album, despite getting the self-proclaimed worst photographer in New York, has <laughs> quite the pedigree. 
The cover featured a painting by Bob Dylan, which I didn't realize until recently, featuring six musicians, which a lot of people think are the five members of the band and himself, a roadie, who uh, I don't know who that is, and an elephant, who I'm going to guess is Albert Grossman. <laughs> and the sleeve design itself was done by a man named Milton Glazer, who later designed the I Heart New York graphic. And he'd gained notoriety in the band circle for creating the colorful poster of Bob Dylan found in Dylan's Greatest Hits album the previous year. It's very famous as his hair and all the curls are a different color. And he looks like a kind of looks like a gumball machine, which I'm into. <laughs> uh, in a sense, Milton Glaser actually sparked this entire project because I, I read that he was actually the one who first took Albert Grossman up to visit Woodstock in the early 60s and then. Bob Dylan, his client, would come up and visit him a lot. He fell in love with the area, and then he bought a place up there, which led to the whole musical influx that followed, or at least led to the whole Big Pink project. And Glazer still lived near the band up in Woodstock when Robbie Robertson sought him out to design the cover for the group's debut using Dylan's painting, Landy's Mountain View portrait, and the next of kin photo of the band members with their families. Robbie wrote in his memoir, Testimony, I told him we were thinking of going with the album title Music from Big Pink. Milton said, what's Big Pink? I told him about our clubhouse where the music we were making had originated. Can I get a photo of that house, he asked, so we understand what Big Pink is. I said, it's really kind of ugly and the house is pink. That's okay, said Milt. It may be good. What about the group's name? We don't have a fancy name. We're just called the band. And yeah, adding to that very nondescript name, the bands were pretty much an enigma when music from Big Pink was released on July 1st, 1968. They more or less refused to give interviews, which could have very easily doomed the band commercially. But instead, the refusal to play the whole promo game made them seem more real and authentic and enhanced their musical purity in the eyes of the public. And Albert Grossman, he was kind of famous for uh, persuading his artists to remain silent in order to cultivate mystique. He did that with Bob Dylan a lot. But the band's disinterest in show business glitz was pretty much genuine. Levon wrote in his memoir, Our policy was not to tour if we could help it. The policy was to keep making music using the methods and work habits that had kept us productive throughout the basement tapes and Big Pink era. We didn't care about being stars. We just wanted to survive with our integrity. And this mystique was also helped by the fact that they didn't tour for a time. Uh, according to Levon, this wasn't because they didn't feel like it, but because Richard Manuel grilled himself or <laughs> seared himself. Uh, an accident that happened at home. Uh, it's a Michael Scott style. <laughs> yeah. The house had a nice view of the Ashokan Reservoir and a barbecue grill, which Richard tried to fire up one day by building a gasoline fire in the bottom. Hudson recalled Manuel pouring some lighter fluid in it. The thing exploded and the flame shot out and burned his ankle. According to Helm, the pit turned into a bomb and he ended up grilling the top of his foot. Third degree burns. So Richard couldn't work for two months. And that was another reason why they didn't tour behind Big Pink. There were some truly harrowing moments that the band got themselves into in Woodstock. Um, mostly Involving just... vehicles. <laughs> yeah, pretty much just cars, really. Uh, Helm injured himself at a, riding a motorcycle and... Danko furnished an all-time quote when he nearly died after wrapping his car around a tree because, in his words, he was a little too drunk, a little too high. He broke his neck and fractured his back in four places, confining him to a bed for three months in like a halo uh, uh, 
thing, a halo, oh. a halo brace. Is that what they call it? Uh. I was for, in for weeks of traction. He said in this wheels on fire. I told Albert not to tell the press I'd had an accident and decided to suppress all my hyper instincts and lie perfectly still for the time it took my neck to heal. They wouldn't perform live as the band until April of 1969, making their debut at San Francisco's Winterland, also the venue for their final gig, The Last Waltz, seven years later in 1976. Robbie got sick beforehand, and they had to hire a hypnotist to get him into performing shape, which uh, the song Stage Fright is at least personally about. They did not have a great success with live um, performances around this time. Famously, they bombed at Woodstock, right? Did they bomb or were they just not recorded? I mean, speaking of all those car accidents, there was some quote from Robbie where he was like, I I think his girlfriend was riding with one of the other guys in the band during one of the many times they crashed their car. And Robbie would say, yeah, it kind of pissed me off when like they almost killed my girlfriend. So this is when you start to feel a little more like, oh, he's stuck with these guys who were struggling to the point of being you know, not responsible people. I'm trying to figure out what exactly had happened at Woodstock. Well, they were between 10 years after and Johnny Winter. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And what happened was Grossman didn't let the band Janis Joplin or Blood, Sweat and Tears be filmed. But there's footage of Janis, isn't there? Yeah. Maybe he reversed course for uh, Janis. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say I've barely seen any footage of the band at Woodstock. Oh, they look boring. <laughs> and David Crosby would always say, like, because Crosby, Seals, and Nash were playing, I think, their second gig ever uh, at Woodstock. And he was always saying, like, yeah, we weren't really all that scared about the 400,000 people in front of us. We were scared about all of our peers behind us, especially the band. Did I mention the band? And he, like, the band were the ones that really freaked him out that he had to perform in front of. Well, they went and overdubbed their voices after, right? Did they? I didn't That's know that. what Robbie just said in this in the, in the book. Crosby, Stills, and Nash? Yeah. Our tapes were the best of any of the group, said Robbie, but we didn't like the setup, and the album seemed pretty shoddy. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young had to go back into the studio and dub over their voices. Oh, God, so what a bitchy. What a prick. <laughs> uh, with the band essentially ghosts in the public eye, the PR team at Capitol did their best worst to come up with a series of ways to promote the album god awful man the record industry i have some friends in pr but man it was always terrible (laughs) it's it's terrible now when you try and make like amy mann come up with a tiktok dance to promote a record and it was terrible back then um they developed a series of contests in levon's opinion that tried to market us like some teeny bopper group a big pink think campaign was proposed, inviting fans to quote name Dylan's cover painting. A fill in the blank competition was also pitched, inviting hopefuls to complete the sentence. If I could be a big pink anything, I'd be a big pink blank. Oh god! Prizes would in- <laughs> <laughs> prizes were to include pink lemonade, pink stuffed pandas, and a pink Yamaha motorbike. Can you imagine if that contest hit the internet now? You'd have everything ranging from like the entire Western canon of slang terms for genitalia to like, I'd be a big pink Holocaust survivor. (laughs) Um, They suggested getting an elephant painted pink in front of Tower Records in LA for the release of our record. A horrified Robertson recalled in testimony. 
Albert and I flew to Los Angeles to get on the same page with Capitol's new president, Stanley Gortikov, and to enlighten the company as to what Big Pink and the band represented, which most certainly was not a pink elephant, nor a name this band contest, which Capitol had also suggested. But ultimately, the band didn't need these corny gimmicks to be successful. Music from Big Pink caught the attention of the biggest names in music. Even the Beatles, whose studio pyrotechnics on Sgt. Pepper and Revolver had provided a foil for the lo-fi basement dwellers, took notice of their rootsy approach. Paul McCartney can be heard launching into an ad-libbed version of Take a Load Off Fanny towards the end of the Beatles' promotional video for Hey Jude during the Na 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 part, which was recorded that September. And George Harrison actually made a pilgrimage to see Dylan and the band on their home turf in the Catskills that fall in 1968. And you could make the argument that the stripped-down White Album bore the influence of Big Pink, but if you listen to the single Lady Madonna, which came out in February of 1968, or was recorded? Recorded in February of 1968. It kind of seems like they were already heading that direction anyway, but still, the band really crystallized it. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to discussing famous admirers of Big Pink, we have to talk about Eric Clapton. <laughs> His fandom for the band was evangelical. He first discovered them via a bootleg tape when he was on a very unhappy summer tour with his then-group, Cream. He wrote in his 2007 memoir, It Stopped Me In My Tracks, speaking about the bootleg, and it also highlighted all the problems I thought Cream had. Here was a band that was really doing it right, incorporating influences from country music, blues, jazz, and rock, and writing great songs. I couldn't help but compare them to us, which was stupid and futile, but I was frantically looking for a yardstick, and here it was. Listening to that album, as great as it was, just made me feel like we were stuck, and I wanted out. And so that July, weeks after music from Big Pink was released, Clapton announced that Cream, which were then one of the biggest groups in the world, would disband. And when Robbie Robertson was informed of this, he said he had mixed emotions about his role in killing Cream. He said Big Pink had turned him around with its subtleties and laid-back feeling. That's him writing in his memoir testimony. Cream played with a much more bombastic approach, and Eric wanted a change. That was a huge compliment coming from him, but I liked some of Cream's songs, and I wasn't sure how I felt about our record being partially responsible for their demise. I think it was just because they got blown off the stage by the MC5 when they came here to tour. Oh, did they? Supposedly. Yeah. Whoa. And when Eric Clapton inducted the band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, he admitted on stage that he also took a pilgrimage to Woodstock in a half-hearted attempt to be welcomed into their ranks. He said, I really sort of went there to ask if I could join the band, but I didn't have the guts to say it. Instead, he would try to create their nuanced playing and collaborative spirit in a new group, the short-lived Blind Faith, and also probably more accurately during his stint with Delaney and Bonnie. But while Big Pink inadvertently took one group out of commission, it also inspired, at very least, one new one. Heigl, tell us about the band that the band inspired with music from Big Pink. Must I? <laughs> <laughs> Scottish hard rockers Nazareth, later of Love Hurts fame. Love Hurts! That song does go. It uh, does. Formed in 1968, took their moniker from... Uh, Robbie Robertson from the uh, the wait pulled into Nazareth. We were sitting around in a place we used to rehearse in when we first got together, and we couldn't agree on the name. Vocalist Dan McCafferty said in 2014, "Where are they from? Glasgow, Edinburgh? I have no idea. 
I can't believe they've been around since 1968. I know, that's wild. Dunfirm, Dunfermline, Dunfermline in Fife, Scotland. That mean anything to you? <laughs> nothing, not a thing. Not nothing in my Anglophile heart. <laughs> we were listening to The Weight when it first came out, and Pete Agnew, our bass player, said, What about Nazareth? And that was it. And with that, we have the least appropriate ending you could ever imagine for this episode. We can't, we cannot end it there. <laughs> Music from Big Pink was generally met with universal praise when it was released in the summer of 68. Al Cooper gave it a five-star review in Rolling Stone, writing, Not inaccurately, this album was recorded in approximately two weeks. There are people who will work their lives away in vain and not touch it. And that is true. But according to Levon Helm, there was one dissenting note. Our local paper in Woodstock, by the way, said the album was okay, but we could have done better, he later said. <laughs> And I don't remember where I read this. I was going through some old notes of mine, some just like raw research notes when I was uh, working on putting this together. And I couldn't tell where I got it from. So apologies for not properly citing and possibly plagiarizing. But music from Big Pink has been described as the closest that rock and roll has come to pure socialism, <laughs> which is hilarious considering the fact that the band's next album would be recorded in the pool house of a Beverly Hills mansion that once belonged to Sammy Davis Jr. And it's also hilarious given all the stuff of a capitalist nature that would basically spell the end of the band within the next seven years. Yeah. Yeah. We got a positive note? I mean... Nothing gold can stay? <laughs> hey, Jordan, let's go downtown. You say, well, I gotta go. But my friend can stick around. And that friend was Satan. That friend was Dr. John. That friend was Neil Young's Coke Booger. That friend was Robbie Robertson's bronzed Stratocaster. That That's friend was Neil was Diamond. That friend was Neil Diamond. Um, I'm gonna pull up a, I'm gonna pull up a song here that I think we should actually use as the outro for this song. Uh, <clears throat> and I'd like a I'd like a moment of silence. Um Well, folks, as Robbie Robertson once said, it's in the way that you use it. Thanks for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.